The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. And welcome to this very exciting lecture, The New Cybernetics, Making Sense of the 21st Century, which will be delivered uh, this morning by the wonderful Professor Genevieve Bell. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and um, I'm delighted uh, to uh, uh, have the privilege of introducing Genevieve, uh, who's very, very welcome indeed, sadly not in person, but joining us uh, uh, all the way from Australia. Um, I want to say a few words though about Human Plus before I, and, and just how the event will run before I uh, introduce Genevieve, but the event is hosted by the Human Plus project and it's a project that is a five-year international interdisciplinary fellowship program that will um, really conduct groundbreaking research that addresses uh, the human-centric approaches to technological development. It's all about putting the human at the center of technological innovation. It's going to create a unique research and training space that integrates expertise and insights from the arts, humanities and computer sciences, as well as real world uh, scenarios from industry and enterprise. Over the course of uh, the next five years, we hope that Human Plus will attract 18 uh, uh, leading researchers who truly understand that interface between technology and the humanistic disciplines. And they'll uh, conduct two-year postdoctoral research fellowships uh, here in Trinity. And the first call for applications has just closed. We've already had some absolutely amazingly engaged candidates that we're currently evaluating, but the call will open again in uh, the autumn. So please uh, do watch uh, this space. For me, what's so exciting about uh, Human Plus is, is that it's truly interdisciplinary um, and um, it combines long relationships that the Trinity Long Room Hub has had with the ADAPT uh, Centre. And it's my absolute privilege uh, that Vinnie Wade, who is um, with us today and will be uh, taking the questions, is if you want my partner in crime here, we're the co-PIs on this grant. Vinnie and I have worked together since 2005 when we began collaborating on the 1641 Depositions Project. And it's been fantastic to work again with Vinnie, but a much wider team um, uh, in the arts and humanities and uh, uh, in computer science and especially ADAPT. Our enterprise program uh, partners are really a critical component of this project. And they're also very important because they provide the necessary co-funding. It's a Marie Curie co-fund uh, to support each Human Plus fellow. So it, basically it's, it's 70,000 from the enterprise partner and this is matched then by 70,000 uh, from uh, the European Commission. So we're really excited to be working uh, with enterprise because actually it allows our fellows then to have this on-site experience. There's a secondment, um, but also these engagements with enterprise will really inform the research strands um, and the participation in the Human Plus 
uh, future labs. But again, it's new territory uh, for us, particularly in the hub, not so much uh, in ADAPT. Um, we had a wonderful event before Christmas uh, called the Human Plus Ideas uh, uh, Showcase, and um, many of you attended. And today's event will provide an opportunity for further discussion and continue that wonderful momentum that the project has uh, uh, built up. So that's Human Plus. Now, a few housekeeping things. I think at this point, everybody's very familiar with virtual events, and we'll make this one, uh, we hope, work seamlessly, uh, but a wee bit of housekeeping. We've um, Declan and Francesca, who are um, at this point veterans in doing this, and they'll give lots of technical support. Uh, feel free to send them a chat if you have any issues, uh, a message in the chat function if you have any issues. Uh, we are recording um, the event and it's being live streamed over the uh, Trinity Long Room Hub uh, Facebook page. Now, this means, of course, that you can listen back to the conversation or if you've really enjoyed it, you can share it uh, with a colleague uh, or, or friend. We'd also love you to join the conversation on social media and you'll see um, in chat the tags and the handles um genevieve is it, it, i mean i was going to say she, she's great on, on twitter i'm still a, a novice but let's get a great conversation going uh, on twitter the other thing i just want to say is join us uh, in social media but also join us uh, by asking questions um if you have any questions at all use the zoom questions and answers function um rather than the chat. So please use the Zoom Q&A. Um, uh, we, we want to share interesting uh, uh, information with you through the chat. Um, the moderators, as well as the wider Human Plus team, will keep an eye out um, uh, for this. And as I said, Vinny will, will moderate. There has been a huge response to this event, even though it's nine o'clock in the morning, which is never a good time uh, usually. Um, we've got over uh, uh, 200 people have registered and what's so exciting is that we really are getting a chance to connect with our friends and colleagues uh, in Australia which we normally don't, that's lovely, but here in Ireland and in Europe we've got um, a, a wonderful array of, of students, of, of academics, of colleagues from the world of enterprise uh, and business. So I mean it's just fantastic. So you you're all extremely welcome and as I say do get involved in the Q&A uh, or join us uh, uh, online in terms of social media. Now without further ado Genevieve Bell. Um, a few words of introduction though she really doesn't need any but I'll say it anyway. Uh, Genevieve is a renowned anthropologist, a technologist and futurist. She completed her PhD in cultural anthropology at Stanford in 1998 and is best known for her work at the intersection of cultural practice and technology development. She's currently the director of the School of Cybernetics. I think we're going to hear a lot more about that. And the 3A Institute, the 3AI at the Australian National University, ANU. And she's also a vice president and senior fellow at Intel Corporation. So after spending 18 years in Silicon Valley, um, Genevieve um, uh, uh, obviously has come into the world, you've crossed over to the dark side, but when you're in Silicon Valley, you were guiding Intel's uh, product development and social science and design research capabilities. Uh, uh, but yeah, then of course you, you, you went back to ANU in 2017, uh, where you are just doing this. In, in, I mean, it's inspiring what you're doing there, Genevieve. 
And I actually um, want to just say, I have absolutely loved getting to know you over the past couple of years. This isn't obviously your first uh, interaction with us uh, in Trinity. Um, back when Megan and Harry were on their honeymoon in um, uh, uh, Dublin, um, it, you spoke. And I remember that day so vividly because we all sort of were hanging out of the windows watching Megan sort of mince across the cobbles in her high heels and there were snipers on the roof. It was all very uh, dramatic and exciting. But of course, the highlight of that day was, was your talk. And, 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 and actually, you, you began this journey for us, um, uh, Genevieve. So Human Plus, I was going to say, drew inspiration from that conversation back then. You were supposed to have been in Dublin as a fellow and COVID kiboshed that. So you know you have this uh, uh, open invitation to join us at any point. Uh, we would welcome that absolutely enormously. And I'm really excited to hear uh, uh, what you have to say. So without further ado, may I invite Genevieve Bell um, to grab the microphone. So Genevieve, over to you and welcome and thank you. Oh my God, Jane, thank you for that. That was an incredibly gracious and glorious introduction and I couldn't ask for better. And I'm so happy to be back with this audience and to see all those familiar names and faces in places. And I'm kind of wishing for a moment when we can all be back in the same room together, not just the Zoom room, but the actual room. And I too remember that day with uh, Harry and Megan because I remember that we had to come through a metal detector to give my talk and I thought to myself, well, these people in Ireland really understand how dangerous I am. Of course, it turned out it wasn't for me. Uh, it's also really nice to be back with Human Plus, with ADAPT and with The Long Room because The Long Room has been a place that's been welcoming me and my ideas and has been a receptive audience for all kinds of new thinking, which is good. <laughs> because today is all about new thinking all over again, because as of three months ago, I've embarked on a new job as the inaugural director of the School of Cybernetics here at the Australian National University. So I'm hoping you're going to indulge me for 30 minutes while I tell you some stories about cybernetics and about why it matters. And I'm hoping I can create some through lines and just a little bit of possibility and possibility thinking. Uh, but we begin all of our conversations in Australia, and I consider that much as you are welcoming me to Ireland, I'm welcoming you to my home country too. We begin all of our conversations by acknowledging whose country we're on as a way of making visible that the history of Australia didn't begin with European settlement, and also making clear the importance of our First Nations people in the present, not just the past. For me, this is a form of both respect and responsibility. So I wanna begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from which I'm speaking and pay my respects to elders past and present. I'm on Ngunnawal and Nambri land here today in Canberra. This is land that is always sacred and had never been ceded. And I wanna pay my respects to the elders and traditional owners of other places where people are listening to me today and where I hope we will be chatting later. Uh, it's sometimes really easy to think about technology and technical systems and to imagine that they're modern inventions, right? Artifacts of the industrial age. But for me, whenever I talk about the future or about technical systems, I'm really aware that I'm doing it in a place where humans have been making the future and making technical systems for at least 80,000 years. Here in Australia, Aboriginal people have maintained complex systems and their insights and knowledge have, well, profound resonances with the current day. So for me, acknowledging where we start is a hugely important way of contextualizing what we're up to. And Jane, you told a little bit about the story of us first meeting and of the conversations we've had, but I needed to give people a little bit of context to talk about why it is that we're now doing something so radically different. 
Uh, so some of you will remember, I came to Dublin in July of 2018, and I was talking about the fourth wave of the Industrial Revolution, the rise of AI and big data and algorithms and automated machinery. And I was suggesting that that was a moment that we found ourselves in and that that was a moment of, um, well, huge change and change that I thought required a structural intervention if we as humans were to find our way through that felt like something we wanted. And I'd been looking at prior industrial revolutions and I thought I'd come up with a way through that was deceptively clear. All we needed to do, I said back then, was establish a new branch of engineering to take AI safely, sustainably and responsibly to scale. And we founded the 3A Institute here in Australia six months previously, so in 2017, to pursue just that agenda. Now, in three and a half years of attempting to build a new branch of engineering in the 21st century, we've kind of learned a lot of things, right? We worked out you needed to find like-minded people and partners who were willing to take a risk on you and to, I think, not so much think outside the box, but dance outside the box. Uh, we've been teaching our new branch of engineering into existence through all these experimental education programs. Uh, we've been researching it into existence with field sites as diverse as well, Shakespeare's birthplace in the United Kingdom, scientific exploration on the Great Barrier Reef and the world's largest autonomous mine here in Australia. And we've been theorizing it into existence too, asking what are the core questions that the next generation of AI powered systems raise? I think on our best days, we've been creating a whole new generation of critical thinkers and more importantly for me, critical doers. On our bad days, I think we've just been a bit naughty. <laughs> and we've been looking at prior industrial revolutions and the disciplines they created civil engineering, electrical engineering, computer science. And we'd really been kind of thinking about all the ways that this new set of technology demanded that kind of response. It demanded an institutional and disciplinary response. But for me, I think I've also come to regard the importance of a theoretical vantage point, not just a disciplinary one. And imagining that you can unmoor those two things is for me an important kind of step that a discipline and a theory don't have to have a one-to-one -one relationship. And the theoretical tool that I've increasingly found myself attracted to is this notion of cybernetics. I'm willing to bet for some of you, you hear the word cybernetics and you go, wait, what? <laughs> like cybernetics? Like what is she talking about? And I'm sure for some of you, that phrase feels like a familiar thing. It's a thing you've heard before. Uh, one of my colleagues said, sounds like science fiction. Someone else said, sounds old. And someone else went, sounds modern. And I'm like, okay, it's all of those things, right? Uh, I think it's a bit like a familiar stranger in speech. I think it has a little bit of the uncanny to it. It's also an echo to a prior set of conversations. So how would you tell the story, right? How do you go back to the beginning where that echo comes from? Well, I think you have to tell a story about a time when the power of computing seemed limitless. And when the question that was asked every day would be, a computer's gonna be intelligent and are they gonna think like we do? And every day more and more data was being generated and the questions about that data were, what are people gonna do with it? And should government have access to it? And what kinds of things will that make possible? And it was a time when governments and universities and companies were all wondering about what they would do with all this new computing power and all the advances that were coming. And everyone was worrying about the future. And that year, that year was 1946. So 75 years ago. Uh, and every month in that year and the years preceding it had had new breakthroughs. There'd been things that were once theoretical had suddenly become possible. The world's first general purpose computer, the ENIAC had come online. Turing had created a design for a stored memory program. 
And Vannevar Bush had published an incredibly important paper in the American journal, The Atlantic Monthly, called As We May Think. And he'd asked his readers to imagine a device in which you would store your books and your records and all your communications and all your texts, and you'd be able to consult it with speed and flexibility, and you'd be able to use it to supplement your memory. He called that Memex, 1946. And a mathematician and philosopher called Norbert Wiener had been making this notion of a feedback loop of how data might circulate and information and energy. It's a really kind of heady moment, right? And it's a moment in some ways that should feel a little bit familiar, the idea of increasing computational power and big questions. And into that breach, well, comes Norbert Wiener. So at this point, he'd been a mathematician, he'd been a philosopher, he'd been a theorist. He was deeply concerned with the idea of the system and the idea of controlling a system, particularly a system that had computing in it, because he is, of course, sitting in that moment where computing is becoming a thing, like a real genuine thing, not just a thought experiment. And he coins the term cybernetics as a whole new area of study and a new way of thinking about the world. Uh, he thought it would be a feedback loop because that's what he'd worked on. And he believed it would be a feedback loop that had to incorporate the biological, the technical and the human sometimes the ecological, those pieces. He had to make up the word because of course it didn't exist. The word cybernetics is an invented word. So every time you hear cyberspace or cybersecurity, that cyber piece belongs to Norbert. It was his bringing it into existence as a word. It's a borrowed word from the Greek, from the word helmsman, kybernets. Uh, I think what Norbert is playing with here is that the idea that these systems, these computing systems, needed to be controlled was that they also needed to be steered, that they would need to be directed, and that there would be a human in the loop, as it were, or a human steering and controlling these systems. But in order to make that work, he thought you actually had to start to theorize what it would look like. And for him, this framework is about how do you mediate the coming wave of technology with a very clear understanding of what computers might be able to do but had not yet done. And so it's really about, well, a feedback loop and a notion about control, except it doesn't stop there, right? It's easy for a man to coin a term. Uh, Norbert, to his credit, wrote a book about it called the book Cybernetics. He spent a lot of time talking about cybernetics long before we had the internet and hashtags. But if we had had a hashtag, Norbert would have known how to use that in a heartbeat. But in order to give his theory, I think, a robust set of conversations. He did something more, which was to convene a series of conversations. So he was in some ways brave enough to think that the idea didn't just need to be his. It needed to have a whole set of other people that were involved in it. And so from 1946 through to 1953, a philanthropic fund in America called the Macy Foundation, who they still around today, mostly they sponsor medical research. But back in the 1940s, they funded 10 conferences over an eight-year period that brought together an extraordinary collection of people from across the disciplinary range. Uh, everyone from mathematicians to philosophers to anthropologists. And the idea was to talk out cybernetics and how could you bring all the possible points of view there, right? And so over the space of these conferences, there were conversations about mind control, the constitution of memory, how people learn, ideas about childhood learning and development, the subconscious, abstract linguistics, even, wait for it, the consciousness of octopuses, all of those things were kind of on the table and being discussed, right? And it's really clear when you read the transcripts of these conversations that 
it wasn't just about the computer. It was also about what technology might mean in the future. It wasn't just about the role of technology per se. It was about the relationship between technology and society. And it's important to remember that even as the power of computing seemed limitless and technical solutions seemed to be proceeding in leaps and bounds, in the immediate rearview mirror in 1946 in America, where these conversations are happening and well all over the rest of the world, is World War II. And so for the men and women, and it was men and women, who were gathering in the United States, and they weren't just Americans, they came from Latin America and Europe and uh, Asia. For all of those people, the echoes of World War II were ever present. They had seen and lived through what could be done with new technologies, it wasn't good about the ways in which those new technologies could be used to create catastrophic damage, think the atomic bomb, but that also lived through watching what people would do with computing, which at that point was control weaponry. And so there was a live debate going on in these events about the power of technology, about what technology should do with a clear consciousness about if you didn't get it right, the consequences of that wrongness could be global in scale and existentially awful in nature. And so there's something about the way this conversation is framed that is very much about how do you move from an existential threat to a set of opportunities and how might you create a way to hold that computation and that power in a forward-looking human-centric point. Now, as I said, there were oodles of different people at these events, and that's also really hugely important, right? It wasn't just about um, a conversation. It was about all the voices that were there. And it's striking in the range of where they came from. Not only are they from different disciplinary points, they've got different life experiences. Some of them are academic, some of them are industry, some of them are in government. And fascinatingly, and if you were looking at this PowerPoint slide here, what you're reading here is a quote from Margaret Mead. And it turns out along with Norbert Wiener and John von Neumann and Claude Shannon and Licklider, so in some ways the men who created our technological future in the United States, there were also anthropologists, notably Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead. They helped curate the event. Mead is quite clear that one of her roles was to help hold all those very disparate people in conversation. Any one of us who has worked in an interdisciplinary space knows half of the challenge of that job is not once you're in the conversation, it's getting to the conversation and creating a shared domain in which that conversation could proceed. Mead, reflecting on the cybernetics conferences in the late 1970s, uh, she was sitting at a kitchen table at Gregory Bateson's kitchen table, at this point her longtime ex-husband, they're sitting together, they're being interviewed by Stuart Brand, the man who would create the whole earth catalog and the well and be instrumental in the invention of the internet. And Mead is asked to reflect on the conference and on those conversations. And she says, there were mathematicians and physicists, people trained in the physical sciences who were very, very precise in what they wanted to think about. And there were a small group of us, anthropologists and psychiatrists, who were trained enough in psychology about, about psychology in groups, that we knew what was happening and could use it or disallow it. And then there were one or two, two or three gossips in the middle who were very simple people, had a lot of loose intuition and no discipline to what they were doing. In a sense, it was the most interesting conversation conference I've ever been to because no one knew how to manage this thing yet. I think it must have been extraordinary to think about what it was to have those conversations. It's also in a time before disciplines started policing their boundaries so much before funding bodies were quite so rigorous about who could be in a conversation and who couldn't. I think, Jane, the conversations we have now might have been a little bit easier in 1946 than they are in 2021. Uh, and I'd like to imagine that Mead is thinking about 
not just what it was like to hold those people in conversation, but what it meant to try and build a theoretical framework that spanned across disciplines. Now, of course, one of the flip sides of having all those people coming from all those different places is that starting in 1947, what it meant to talk about cybernetics radically transforms. So Norbert's got one point of view, Bateson has another, but all the other participants start to develop their own ways of talking about it, their own ways of thinking about it, their own kind of language to describe it. Bateson talks about it as a branch of mathematics that's dealing with problems of control and recursiveness and information forms and patterns. Uh, Ashby talks about it as the art of steermanship, and it's as much about geometry and real objects as a methodology. Other people talk about it as a science. Uh, Stafford Beer just says it's the art of effective organization. And Gordon Pask, who goes on to be really important in the design community, just says it's an excuse to be able to use metaphors effectively and deceptively. <laughs> so everyone ends up with a different point of view about what the conversation is, and they take back pieces of cybernetics to different places. So whether it's Stafford Beer, who takes cybernetics into organizational theory, or Pask, who takes it into design and human factors engineering, or Ashby, who continues to work on notions of human consciousness and intelligence, cybernetics picks up out of that moment and moves into, a, I think, sometimes a thousand other places, but certainly a collection of other places. And as it does that, there's a whole lot of other stories you can tell. There's one that says, well, cybernetics flourished briefly in America and then disappeared. It's a story that says, well, it found form in lots of other countries and places, Eastern Europe, Latin America, notably Chile, also the United Kingdom. You could also talk about the fact that there were theoretical shifts and we talk about first order and second order and third order cybernetics and their various vantage points on the system that they take as their object of recognition. I'm a bit more interested in the way cybernetics remade itself and all the other discourses it shaped and influenced. I think you can make a pretty clear argument that the artificial intelligence research agenda of the 1950s and 60s is a direct product of cybernetics. Not only were the same people in the conversation, Shannon, Licklider, von Neumann, but it's also in dialogue with the entire of the cybernetics uh, portfolio or oeuvre. And there are all these other descendants and echoes. Cybernetics travels with Bateson to California where it becomes deeply embedded in conversations about computing and humanity, but also focuses on ecology and becomes part of the entire notion about the ecological and the sustainable on the West Coast. And then it finds form with Stuart Brand and the whole Earth Catalog and Doug Engelbart and the ARPANET and then the personal computer. It also turns out more close to home for me, cybernetics helps shape American anthropology and frames up the way to think about culture as a system that still holds sway in American anthropology today. And that all stems from a series of conversations between American anthropologists and the cyberneticians in the 1940s. And then you can look at Gordon Pask and Jason Reichardt and see that cybernetics in fact has profoundly impacted computer design, computer graphics and digital art. So it might've receded a little bit, but it's echoes in its generative capacity turn out to be everywhere still. So, for me, sitting in 2021, the idea of cybernetics, of steering a technological object, of keeping humans in the loop, of imagining that all of those loops sit inside an environment that is both at peril and in desperate need of intervention, feels surprisingly hopeful. So I want to feel like there's a moment of bringing forward a new kind of cybernetics, one that is both, well, creative and also generative. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, 
that's my new space. <laughs> that's what my space here at the Australian National University looked like three weeks ago. So we're building something new here, quite literally. Now, in true cybernetic fashion, we're building something new inside something old. That room, it's about 5,000 square metres, sits inside a building from the 1960s covered in pebble creek and concrete arches. Uh, we're trying to imagine what that space should like look like to contain us. It's full of lots of unfinished things. And as a result, I suspect lots of optimism. I also think that means we get to think a lot about the future and also how we need to remake the present so we can find our way straight to that future. For us, that also means we're having to spend a lot of time building a new thing in an existing place. So we're building a new thing in a university, a new school in a place that hasn't seen one in a while, and a new school in a place the unexpected. So the Australian National University was founded by uh, the Prime Minister of the day, Chifley, and its first Vice-Chancellor, a man named Nugget Coombs. It was founded the same year as the first Macy's conference took place, so 1946. And they're both events founded in a kind of optimism about the future in the wake of World War II. And they were both institutions committed to bringing together really different kinds of people. The ANU founder of the ANU founder wrote about the university that he believed that there was a profound need to tackle problems and a consciousness that much of the knowledge necessary to tackle those problems didn't exist yet. And that knowing that meant that we had to establish a university that would be an intellectual powerhouse for rebuilding society. Uh, I like to think that that man, Nugget Coombs, would appreciate what we're trying to do here inside this building and inside this new way of thinking. 75 years later, though, a long time after 1946, we know that the connections we make have to span, well, the world, right? They have to span the globe. Uh, on that map in front of you, they have to at least get from New York to Canberra and then maybe to Portland, because I have a connection for that place. We know it must connect the digital and the physical, as well as students and staff and citizens and government and the for-profit and the for-purpose sectors. We know that much like those cybernetic conversations of the 1940s, we're going to have to have many voices and many points of view that we can gather together. And we know whatever we're going to build here is going to need to move and grow and adapt and get out of Canberra and go to the rest of the planet, which means that all the ideas we have here are going to end up in other people's hands. And when they do that, you kind of hope you've given them enough grace and enough shape that they'll hold and continue to do something interesting. And of course, we're starting these conversations here in Australia which means we're starting them in the place that holds the oldest cybernetic systems in the world. Uh, on the screen in front of you is a paradigmatic original cybernetic system. That's the Borona fish traps in the town of Borona on the New South Wales, Queensland border on the Barwon River. The design was given to the local people by an ancestral figure named Biami. He's their ancestral uh, creation spirit. And generations of Aboriginal people have fished on this river in these traps. It's about a kilometre's worth of stone weirs. They are shaped like fishing nets in new shapes. They catch the fish. They curve down the river. Uh, there are pens for holding fish at different uh, heights of the water. That means that the fish stay alive uh, in a region. That means that you can bring hundreds of people to gather on the banks of this river to build culture and conduct ceremonies and establish knowledge and be in this place. Uh, people still gather at these fish weirs and still fish from them. Uh, this is a system that archaeologists imagine is between 20 to 40,000 years old. So 
a system that's been 40,000 years in the making and the keeping, a system that was used as recently ago as three weeks ago. It wasn't used last weekend because that river is in flood, uh, but it's a system that is recognized by the New South Wales State Register and the State Heritage List. It's a system that is recognized as being uh, an exemplar of Indigenous knowledge, of Indigenous ways making and sense making. And it's also a cybernetic system. It is a technical system. It understands hydrology and lithics and movements of animals. It's a cultural system. It holds together both cultural knowledge of how to use it and the people who would have used it. And it is a system inside an ecological region. Uh, it is in some ways an ex remarkable example. Uh, it's accumulated commitment to build and sustain and upgrade something. Uh, and for me, it's a constant reminder that as we imagine designing, building, regulating, decommissioning, even resisting cybernetic systems, what it means to think about building one that might last 40,000 years is both a challenge and a reframing of how we think about the notion of a technology. So where does all of that lead us? Well, here in this new school of cybernetics, I think we have two jobs uh, and neither of them are small. <laughs> I think we need to tell stories about the future, stories that motivate and inspire and challenge and offer a different set of possibilities than the place in which we find ourselves now. But at the same time, I think we have to actively disrupt the present to make those future stories possible. It's not just enough to tell a story about the future, you have to break the present open so that future can come into existence. And for me at least, and I hope for the rest of the wonderful people who inhabit this school with me and the people I hope are yet to come to this school, this notion of a cybernetic approach feels purpose fit for the 21st century. Uh, for me, the notion of a system as a tool to think with feels really important. And as a critical theoretical tool with which I want to ask questions, it just feels so timely. And an approach that ensures we can hold together the ecological, the cultural and the technical feels like something that is so acutely needed in the world. I don't understand why everyone is not talking about cybernetics, because for me, it feels like that's the moment we should be in. So I wanted to close by saying thank you, but I also wanted to extend an invitation and make a request. I suspect in my instance, they are the same thing here. We're embarking on something a little bit mad here in Australia. Jane knows me well enough to know that's not really a surprise. And uh, I suspect there are many people on this webinar who've known me and know that it's probably not surprising that I'm trying to do something a little bit crazy. Uh, I also know better than to think you want to do those kind of crazy things, those mad adventures alone. So my invitation and my request is pretty simple. Will you help us? We're going to have job ads soon. We're going to be recruiting, much like Jane, our next set of students. Uh, we are still hiring, so we have new faculty to hire and I imagine more to come. Uh, we want partners and fellow travellers and friends and people to argue with. All of those things seem good. So if the things that you've heard here seem interesting, find us. Uh, if you've seen things that are relevant, will you send them along? And when we can do it all again, will you please come and visit? So with that, I want to stop and say thank you. Thank you very much, Genevieve. Um, really interesting and thought-provoking presentation. Um, and I just want to go straight to some questions that are coming up on the question and answers. Um, the first one from, from Perry asks, you know, how do we structurally ensure Mead's gossips are included in the current conversations about AI and robotics 
Um, again, it, it, it seems difficult to actually include these multiple voices um, within Listen, the conversation. I think, I think that's one of the most perfect questions. I think one of the things that's lovely for me about that quote from Mead was that she fully understood that you needed to have diverse voices and voices that didn't obviously find themselves there. And she's very clear that you have to spend time curating that and making sense of it and making it deliberate. So I think one of the ways you have to do that in all the contemporary conversations we have about technology is to ensure that when we talk about a diversity of voices, we mean all the forms of diversity there might be, background, lived experience, uh, theoretical predispositions. And it sometimes means, well, I think it always means, uh, being willing to spend a little bit of time at the beginning, making sure there's room for all of that. So Mead is really clear in all of her reflections on those events that half of the work was getting into the conversation in the first place, <laughs> that people would spend a lot of time talking around each other until they got to a shared vocabulary. And even then they used to litigate things. And I suspect she and Bateson both talk about this a little bit, and I see this in other parts of our worlds, uh, that there's something about as soon as you have those moments where you're bringing voices from so many different places, you also have to have leaders and others who are willing to hold the discomfort I think there's something about productive discomfort, about productive conflict, where you're mm -hmm. not necessarily going to easily get to a resolution. And I think there's a little bit about how do we create a space for there to be that moment where it doesn't easily resolve. Um, and I think how we're all a little bit willing to have those moments. Again, productive discomfort just sounds incredibly, <laughs> incredibly hard work, but really I think useful. Another question um, was around, you mentioned developing critical thinkers and critical doers. But uh, in, in, in the conversation is how do we establish the best environment to make both possible? Because uh, there's a dichotomy there. Oh, absolutely. Listen, I think one of the things that has been really instructive to us here as we've built now four years worth of different kinds of educational experiments was how you remember that it's not just enough to ask the question. You also have to think about what the form of the answer might be. And so for us, it's been, uh, Ironically, if there's anyone from Intel on this webinar, you will recognize this next phrase, but the first CEO of Intel, the second CEO of Intel, used to say that you could be smart to point out a problem, but it was actually better to also point out a solution or offer up some ways of solving it. And so for me, there's a little bit about how do we pair an ability to ask questions with some tools for how you think about moving that conversation forward. So you're not just asking questions, but you're thinking about ways of unpacking it. And I don't always think those have to be the same thing as getting straight to answers. There's again, for me, a little bit about how do we learn to ask useful questions where the questions can sometimes unfold to a different starting point. But you're right, there's a tension between critical thinking and critical doing. And I don't wanna suggest you do one or the other. I think you have to do both. And I suspect for the person asking the question, the reality is, some people are better at one, not the other. And the trick is not to create cultures or environments that make a fetish of one at the expense of the other. Um, and I'm, I'm going through all the questions as I can because they're all coming through fast. But uh, you mentioned Intel there. How do you see the interactions between industry and academia in co-producing knowledge, say for your school of cybernetics? I have been lucky enough at this point in my career to sit in multiple pieces in this story, right? I've sat in universities, I've sat in industry, I have been in bits of government. So I've, sort of, I've seen multiple pieces of that puzzle. Uh, and I think it's really different in different uh, disciplines. 
So I think, you know, the relationship between some disciplines and industries is contested and in some others it is much more, uh, I think, a flow. For me, what's fascinating is twofold. One is when you go back and look at the early history of cybernetics and indeed artificial intelligence and even computing, those were disciplinary practices that were always about a relationship between industry and the academy. The original proponents of AI, half of them came out of industry and the others were academics. The same with cybernetics. There were people coming from multiple places in those conversations. I think it's only recently that those have become harder relationships to think about how to sustain. Mm -hmm. uh, for us inside the School of Cybernetics, we have a series of what I think of as partnerships and relationships with a range of different organizations that span large commercial enterprises. So Microsoft has been a partner of the Institute for a long time since it started. Uh, as well as government organizations, as well as philanthropic organizations, but also for me, as we think about establishing a new school, right? So we have that, we have that space, which hopefully has painted walls now. <laughs> I, live in hope. I know it's got insulation. I'm quite excited about that. Um, we imagine when we start that space and we move in, in about two and a half months time, um, mm -hmm. we will bring with us our industry partners, our philanthropic partners, a couple of small businesses. And so for me, there's something about how do you make a university space, a place through which things flow, not a place in which things get stuck. And so making sure that those relationships are there. And then pragmatically, that means things like our students, much like uh, Jane was reflecting on the postdocs, our students spend time in apprenticeships and internships mm -hmm. and spend time uh, in the places that many of them will end up working, which for me feels really important. Great. There's a couple of questions coming in, looking to be more specific. If I take one, um, and um, how do you see something like quantum computing disrupting in the future? Um, for example, complex systems would likely need large central systems, which returns to the mainframe idea. And it's, so the temptation is a back to the future issue here. Okay, this is a bit where I go, I'm an anthropologist, don't ask me about quantum. Um, lots of people who are much better versed to answer that question. What I can say is that you're right to ask the question about increasingly complex systems, because I think that is part of the dynamic that's at play here, right? The systems that Norbert and his colleagues were contemplating are nothing like the ones we find ourselves in now. Although they imagined the possibility, they hadn't really thought through the pragmatics or the, the kind of implementation piece. Uh, for me, I think the emergence of increasingly intertwined, increasingly complex systems actually makes it even more critical to have these kind of tools to think with. And now it's clear that cybernetics is like all tools, right? It's, you know, you don't want to use it for everything. You don't want to make it into that terrible idiom of if you've got a hammer, everything's a nail. So I don't, yeah. I'm conscious of not wanting to do that. Yeah. I'm also really conscious when I say the system feels like a really useful tool to think with for the 21st century, that approaches to the system exist in almost every discipline, as well as in other kinds of practice, right? Auditors have a way of thinking about systems. <laughs> So do yeah. philosophers, so do ecologists and sociologists. So I'm aware that there are lots of different ways of thinking about the system, but I do imagine we're at a point where we need to be up-leveling that, up that conversation and sort of starting to talk about why the system matters. I mean, if anything, I would say looking at, oh gosh, you know, we're a year plus into a global pandemic, mm -hmm. systems have come into sharp focus that probably weren't so clear a year ago, whether it's supply chains, uh, hello, the ever given in the Suez Canal, where we suddenly went, wait, <laughs> that doesn't seem good, uh, to how we think about the movements of vaccines, of viruses, of bodies, a whole lot of systems that were 
not always visible to everyone are much more on display in ways that I think are hard to unsee. And so how we find ways of both describing the phenomena, analyzing the phenomena and imagining there are ways of building different all feel like important kind of things to be contemplating. And related to that question that Nancy just made, the ones that people are asking is, well, where do you see the boundaries of cybernetics? Um, because you know, although we've got technology and engineering, there is also economic and political systems and so forth. How would you define the boundaries or, or do you define the boundaries? How, how, do, you, how do you navigate that, that, that challenge? Yeah, for me, one of the things that was appealing about cybernetics, both in its earliest instantiations and in its various sort of first, second, third order, and then the ways it's kind of moved beyond the, its original moment, was that it's, it's an approach to thinking about a system that, at least for me, means you always and already have to imagine that system has in it technical pieces, cultural pieces, and ecological pieces. That means you can't think about a system without thinking about, for me, the humans in it. You can't think about a system without then thinking about the political economy of it, the moral economy of it, the pragmatic transportation of it. You might also then have to think about what sustains it. And it's certainly the case that one of the conversations we don't have a great deal about current and next generation technical systems is the amount of energy they require. Uh, the amount of energy that it takes to run a server farm or power uh, deep learning algorithms are surprisingly high. Uh, and even being able to kind of articulate what are the uh, consequences of these sort of systems on all the other pieces feels to me to be important. So I'm trying not to, I'm trying to sort of thread a needle here of not making cybernetics everything because then it's not useful, but also not limiting it so exclusively to what, you know, Norbert said back in 1946 that it's untenable. And there's something in the middle there for me about can you use it to create a space that welcomes a bunch of those other kinds of conversations in. And for me, at least, part of what made it interesting as an intellectual moment 70 plus years ago was that then at least the practitioners of it understood you needed to have multiple voices in the room. And it's really striking to me when you go back and look at the early conversations, how much of those conversations are being driven out of the social sciences and the humanities, and just how much of this touches down in um, art and design in particular. And a lot of our conversations around AI tend to get driven most, most, most because of our most recent forms of algorithms tend to be driven around data. So one of the questions we're getting uh, in is, you know, our data systems develop and become even more complex. What are your thoughts about on the challenges and opportunities for driving the right behavior with the users of the, that, that data? And how disconnected were they with the, that data? Because and we're, we're, we're being told data-driven is good, but by itself it's yeah. not um, in my other other day job, I've been writing a paper. It's not finished, but the books are on the floor <laughs> at some point um, about the relationship between um, ideas about data and ideas about truth. So I remember sitting in a conversation now a decade ago where someone said to me that more data equaled more truth. And I remember at the time thinking, mate, more data just equals more server farms. Or like more data just equals more stuff, just equals more data. And I think one of the challenges we've had is that we have, in fact, wanted to believe that slippage, right, that more data would, in fact, equal more truth. And there, there would be a moment if we had enough data that the world would come into sharp relief. And I suspect lurking inside of that are some pieces you'd want to unpack a little bit. One being that, of course, data is only as good as your sensing tools. So it's only as good as the mechanism you had to collect the data. And chances are that's already partial, circumspect, and 
complicated for whatever set of reasons. Uh, second thing about data is it's always retrospective. So it's what has happened, not what will happen, which means if you are basing decisions on it, you are re-inscribing a set of historical artifacts and inequities over and over again and creating quite impossibilities for change. And then there's, of course, the models that say, you know, what are you using the data to make sense of? Uh, and for me, then looking inside of that is the, you know, the problem of the tacit versus the explicit. Uh, there is tacit knowledge. And sometimes data reveals things that people are aware of and unwilling to change or unaware of and don't know how to change. And so one of the, for me, always the interesting problematics when people talk about data-driven decisions is that frequently the thing that is being unearthed by so-called big data didn't need big data to know about it. Uh, the obvious example, because I hear this one a lot, uh, big data telling us that there is a pay inequity between men and women. I'm not sure we needed big data to tell us that. I'm fairly certain that we have known for quite some time that there were structural inequities in the way women were paid and men were paid. The better question is, why have we not chosen to act? And why is it that we imagine a new set of data will propel us to action? Um, so for me, how you unpack all of those pieces, the kind of cultural work we think data is doing, the ways in which we understand what data is and what it isn't, how we do a better job of articulating what we are using it for and why we are empowering or imagining that having data will drive us to different decisions, all for me feel like kind of important questions. And, you know, again, a lot of those questions aren't new. You can look back to data-driven decisions around social and cultural inequities 100 years ago uh, or 150 years ago and, you know, tracking many of the same phenomena we would see now. So for me, I think there's a, a different set of questions to ask there too about what propels and doesn't propel action. Uh, um, another question, slightly from a different angle, um, you know, the idea that cybernetics is, is, is around the notion of control, but however, cybernetic technologies are interacting with other technologies and earth systems that are unpredictable and hardly controllable. Um, so, how does contingency, so how does contingency partake in this new vision of cybernetics? It's a really uh, interesting question. It is, it's a great question. And I'm, uh, in the days when I get to still think in an anthropological sense, I'm also really interested in non-human actors. So both the sort of animal and other things. Uh, so how we think about those as not following quite the same set of rules. Now, of course, the control that I think people were imagining in the 1940s was probably a seductive illusion. <laughs> I mean, there was a notion that they might be able to get to control. Yeah. Uh, and even the notion of a, a helms person is a complicated one or a steerer of a boat, right? That already is predicated on some really interesting ideas. Um, I think one of the most fascinating pieces out of systems engineering is the notion of emergent properties and emergent properties of systems. I think for me, at least a useful starting point is even to allow in the configuring of a technical system that you have to think about humans and the ecology. That feels to me like some of the systems I've been involved in over the last 20 years, if we'd been able to have that conversation, we might've got to a different starting point. But imagining just because you say it's a system doesn't mean it's controllable, but it does mean that you can start to think about what are the what are the mechanisms that exist within it? What are the feedback loops? Because I think that's actually an important part of Norbert's early work of how we think about the way things circulate as much as the ways they are being controlled and about the places where the systems break and fail feel important too. And I think one of the most startling things here in Australia, and we've had a very different experience of the pandemic than I know you've had in Ireland, but mm -hmm. one of the things for us was that before the pandemic started, we'd come out of a season of bushfires that had been unprecedented in both their range and reach. 
And I think one of the things that had made clear to many Australians was that a lot of the systems of the 20th century that we were building the 21st century on weren't as stable as we imagined. Not a problem mm. of control, but a problem of brittleness, right? And so sitting inside some of those ideas about control are also challenges around the brittleness of systems, as well as I think, you know, your questioner is right, both their emergent properties and the ways in which some of them are uncontrollable. Though I would say the thing for me about the fish traps in Bawarana, one of the things they constantly remind me about is about what the, um, the cyclicality of things is. What is the arc of time over which you are imagining that system unfolds, right? Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a year? Is it a century? Is it a millennium? And I think that leaves you thinking very differently about notions of control and controlledness. I, um, again, just taking on that last point about um, in terms of, of the thinking, looking at a number of the questions that are coming through now, um, people are asking. I'm, I'm frightened about, to look at the questions that are coming. I know they're great. They're, they're great, and I'm, I'm and I'm I'm trying to to do them justice here. But the thinking and questioning that okay, well, if cybernetics is a way of thinking uh, and dealing with a problem, then how could cybernetics uh, would it be uh, a way in which it could uh, uh, tackle some grand challenges? For example, in the area of sustainability or climate, or in terms of how we treat and, and, and look after the elderly. Um, so I'm just, I'm just wondering, have, yes. have you thought about those, <laughs> like those, those threads? Have you thought through in terms of any of that? Yeah. Yes, and if it doesn't, what's the point? Um, <laughs> like again, so for me, back to critical doing, not just critical thinking, yeah. uh, part of where we have imagined our students will go and our work will go is actually about where are the systems that will need to be designed and built as well as regulated, as well as decommissioned. And I don't just mean technical systems in this sense, I mean human and global ones. And so, no, absolutely. So bearing in mind, we are two months into this journey, mm -hmm. sometimes three. Um, those are all the pieces we would like to think unfold here, which also means for us as we curate the school and how we think about building it out, the voices we wanna bring into the school, I suspect will look a little bit um, startling inside a college of engineering and computer science. Not only do you have an anthropologist, running around. Uh, I'm hoping that we will bring a component of art and design in. It's very clear to me that's part of the cybernetic tradition, but I also think there are ways that art and design function that's hugely important in how you frame up a conversation and how you create room and that idea about how do you both imagine a future state and break open the present a little bit to see that future is a mm -hmm. place where I hope we will bring art and design. We already have in the Institute, we had a long history, a short long history in the time we've been together of doing that kind of stuff. And so for me, thinking about the kind of voices we're hoping will join us here, it really does run the gamut from computer science and engineering and systems engineering, but also ecology, biology, sustainability, art, across the humanities and the social sciences. And all of those things feel like they're gonna be hugely important. I suppose I'm, I'm just aware of time. It's just coming up to 9.55 here in, in Ireland. Um, if I was just asking one last question in terms of, so if, if you were to, to think of cybernetics, what would be the, the key skill sets that you'd see that mm. a, a graduate of your, of your cybernetic school uh, would oh have? Oh my God. Whoever asked that question, I have a job for you. Um, okay, I asked that question. Sorry. Though. Oh, even better. So, Vinny, Vinny, come to Australia. I have a job for you. Um, it's terrible. Shouldn't recruit people live on a webinar. Nothing good can come of it. But please do. Because Jane's like, Jane's coming off camera and go, you can't have him. Um, 
So for us, there's a couple of things, right? I firmly believe you need to give people building blocks across the, the skill set range. So that means I think you need to have a working awareness of how technical systems are comprised. Not so that you necessarily can build them. I've never wanted to turn anyone to, into a computer scientist. My colleagues are better at that than I will be. But I do want you to have the skills necessary to talk to people in that area, which means mm -hmm. all of our students to date have learned to program. They've learned to look at data sets. They've learned to look at data visualizations. They've learned to actually work out how code makes a physical thing work because coding on the screen is really different than making a physical object actually do something. So there's a what are the building practices you need in order to understand how those systems get composed. We also have the same of what are the building blocks of the social and cultural piece of the puzzle. So how do you think about that? Uh, there's the how do you put it all into practice? I'd say the places we still have work to do are around the environmental non-human piece because I think that's always true. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also think much of this is about um, not just what's in your head, right? Um, the the woman who famously started the model that became the Ecole Polytechnique model. So the model that is, you know, sitting underneath the Ecole Polytechnique in France and, you know, actually MIT and a few other places around the world. And she believed that you needed to have an approach that was both, she, she you know, she would reasonably have called it in that period of time, theory and praxis. So you should have a, a set of theoretical tools, but you should also have a set of practical instantiation. So you should be both using your head and your hands. I would say, and I think this is where I would break from the historical part of the cybernetic tradition, I think it has to be heads, hands, and heart. I think it can't just be about what you know pragmatically and theoretically. I think it has to be why you're choosing to apply it and what you are committing to doing. And I'm incredibly lucky that I grew up thinking you had a moral obligation to make the world a better place through your labor and that what you did should result in the world being better when you were done and it should be better for others, not for you. And that better should look more like fair, equitable, and just. And so for me, there's a little bit about I imagine, because I know enough about the history of engineering in particular, mm -hmm. uh, that the engineering discipline is in its earliest instantiation, one of great radicalness. It was said that humans could make the world. It wasn't about gods and kings, right? Mm -hmm. And there's something about what it means to apply knowledge to remaking the world that is, in fact, simultaneously a form of hubris and a form of radical endeavor. And so for me, I think about why would you want cybernetics in the 21st century? Well, because what the world looks like in 2021 cannot be what it looks like in 2030 and we have to make it something different and something better and something more fair and more just and more equitable and more sustainable. And for me, that means you can't just engage people's heads and their hands. You have to bring their hearts along too. Well, that's a great place to, to, to end the, the conversation this morning. Uh, Genevieve, I wanna thank you so much for the, inspiring talk as well as being able to take so many questions so quickly. Uh, apologize. At one stage I felt like a, a compare on, on a question and answer session, but it was uh, it was much better to, to try and get as many of the, the thoughts across. Uh, Jane, did you want to, to say anything just at the end? Do you know what a, a stunning end. Heads, hands and hearts. It says it all, Genevieve. Uh, you've taken us into the future. A thousand thank yous and uh, Vinny, Thank you very much indeed. I mean, and thank everybody for coming. What an amazing, amazing, amazing talk. We'll leave it there then, um, Genevieve. Again, thanks very much. Uh, thank everyone for the for the contributions via the, the question and answer session. Um, sorry, I couldn't get through them all, um, but I, hopefully you you felt that I've managed to get through as many as possible. Um, and uh, we look forward to to meeting again in the future. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone.
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.